0: Imagine dedicating your career to proving that a common and often deadly disease could be linked to a bacterial infection and having your hypothesis rejected by world experts. Your experiments on animals meet a dead end, and you can't test your hypothesis in live human patients. So you decide to take matters into your own hands the only way you know how, by infecting yourself and seeing what happens. The story of how Barry Marshall proved that infection with Helicobacter pylori causes peptic ulcer disease by ingesting a broth infused with the organism is one of medicine's most infamous causes of ingenuity. Thanks to Dr. Marshall and his colleague, Dr. Robert Warren, who won the 2005 Nobel Prize for their discovery, we now know that this plucky bacterium plays a role in many gastrointestinal ailments ranging from chronic gastritis to gastric cancer. And when over half the world's population is chronically infected, understanding how H. pylori works, and more importantly, how to eradicate it, has important implications for public health. Today, our patient has H. pylori, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, The World's Most Common Infection, An Approach to H. pylori infection. Let's start with our minute physiology. Recall that the stomach can be anatomically divided into four main regions, the fundus, cardia, body, and antrum. The gastric mucosa contains several different types of specialized epithelial cells. These cells secrete the major components of gastric juices, which are involved in protein digestion and vitamin B12 absorption. Specifically, chief cells are responsible for secreting the proteolytic enzyme precursor, pepsinogen. G cells secrete the hormone gastrin, and parietal cells secrete HCL, an intrinsic factor. To protect the epithelium against those corrosive gastric contents, Specialized surface mucus cells, known as foveolar cells, as well as mucous neck cells within gastric pits, secrete mucus and bicarb, which serves to neutralize the hydrochloric acid present within gastric lumen. Like in other parts of the body, hormonal feedback loops stimulate or inhibit secretion based on various stimuli. Gastrin, in addition to stimulating growth of the gastric mucosa, also increases hydrogen secretion from parietal cells when it is released. On the other side of things, D-cells in the duodenum secrete somatostatin, which inhibits secretion of gastrin as well as directly inhibiting parietal cell acid secretion. H. pylori is a gram-negative bacterium that infects human hosts, although the mechanism of transmission is unclear. Almost all humans who carry H. pylori are infected in the first year of life, and it is unusual for adults to acquire infection later in life. The bacteria has adapted to survive the acidic gastric environment through a variety of means. Its specialized flagella and possession of mucolytic enzymes allow it to propel itself through the gastric mucosa, allowing it to pass through the mucous layer and colonize the surface epithelium of the stomach. It often inhabits the antrum, where there are fewer acid-secretion parietal cells, but can be found anywhere throughout the stomach. Importantly, H. pylori also produces an enzyme called urease, which converts urea within the gastric juices to CO2 and ammonia. This ammonia serves to locally neutralize gastric acid, facilitating survival of H. pylori. One other important thing to note is that not all H. pylori infections are created equal. The environment, host diet, and genetics, and the particular strain of H. pylori can all influence disease expression. Certain strains of H. pylori secrete virulence factors such as CAGA and VACA. With chronic infections, these factors cause breakdown and increased permeability of gastric mucus and underlying epithelium as well as local inflammation and apoptosis through a variety of mechanisms leading to increased risk of ulcer formation. caga producing strains of H. pylori have also been linked to higher frequency of pre-malignant and malignant gastric lesions. H. pylori is also hypothesized to inhibit somatostatin secretion from D-cells in the gastric antrum, resulting in increased hydrogen ion secretion overall and fueling the vicious cycle. Similarly, H. pylori infection has been associated with decreased duodenal bicarbonate secretion, which can lead to erosion of sensitive duodenal mucosa in some patients overall h pylori colonizes the stomach and interferes with many of its protective mechanisms all the while inciting an inflammatory response that can make individuals with chronic infections susceptible to the complications down the road the majority of people colonized with h pylori acquired during infancy and in the vast majority of cases infection is asymptomatic However, there are several patient presentations where, while completing your detailed history and physical exam, infection with H. pylori should be considered as a contributing factor. Regardless of the patient's presentation, asking where someone was born is a helpful clue to uncover on history, as incidence and prevalence of H. pylori infection is generally higher in patients born outside of North America. Certain regions of Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, Europe, and Southeast Asia are known to have particularly high prevalence of H. pylori infection. Let's go over a few different cases where you'll want to consider testing for H. pylori and briefly discuss an approach to some of these conditions. First and foremost, H. pylori infection should be suspected in any patient with active or historical peptic ulcer disease. A patient with an ulcer may only complain of abdominal pain or may suffer from more sinister complications of peptic ulcer disease, such as bleeding gastric outlet obstruction, fistulization with other organs, or perforation. Key elements on history here would include symptoms of upper GI bleeding, including melina, bloody or coffee ground emesis, rarely hematochezia, early satiety, and epigastric pain with gastric outlet obstruction, feculent vomiting with a fistula, or severe diffuse abdominal pain in the case of perforation. These patients can be unwell, so if a peptic ulcer is suspected, resuscitative measures such as securing your ABCs, obtaining good IV access, and moving to a monitored setting, as well as obtaining prompt specialist consultation are vital. We have an entire podcast episode dedicated to the approach of upper GI bleeds, so please refer to this for more details. In the case of a suspected perforation, patients will have abdominal rigidity and guarding and may show free air under the diaphragm on an upright abdominal x-ray. If a perforation is suspected, prompt surgical consultation is vital. Similarly, a case of suspected fistula or gastric outlet obstruction should have surgical involvement. Another case where H. pylori infection should be suspected is a patient found to have a gastric malignancy, such as gastric adenocarcinoma or mucosal-associated lymphoid tissue, or MALT lymphoma, which represents one of the more unfortunate consequences of H. pylori infection. Patients with these malignancies may present with symptoms of GERD, dysphagia, epigastric pain, weight loss, or bleeding, but typically imaging or endoscopy with biopsy is required to make a definitive diagnosis. Any patient found to have multiple lymphoma or gastric cancer should be screened for H. pylori infection, as eradication of the organism can drastically improve disease remission and prevent development of secondary gastric malignancy. While these presentations should definitely set off alarms for H. pylori infection, There are some other cases where you may want to think about testing it. Chronic H. pylori infection may be considered when investigating patients with dyspepsia, which is formally defined as epigastric pain that is often associated with fullness or nausea. When seeing these patients, it is important to evaluate for alarm features, such as unintentional weight loss or anorexia, dysphagia or eudonophagia, persistent vomiting, or a palpable mass. A careful medication history, particularly for culprit meds such as NSAIDs, characterizing any associations between the pain, like eating or bowel movements, and taking a family history for GI malignancies is also important. These patients may present with epigastric tenderness, but often have a benign physical exam. Investigating for H. pylori might be part of these patients' diagnostic evaluation, but it is important to note that eradication of H. pylori only helps about 30% of patients with dyspepsia. Similarly, while H. pylori is associated with acid hypersecretion, testing for it is not recommended in patients with GERD who do not have another indication for testing, such as chronic dyspepsia or peptic ulcer disease. Testing for H. pylori may be considered in patients on long-term low-dose aspirin or NSAID therapy to reduce the risk of bleeding ulcers, or those presenting with unexplained iron deficiency anemia or idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP. In the cases of iron deficiency anemia, it is hypothesized that, in addition to its associations with GI bleeding, iron uptake in the gastric mucosa may be impaired by H. pylori colonization. In the case of IDP, the exact mechanism by which H. pylori contributes to its development is unknown, but some observational studies have suggested that treating infections improve platelet counts in some individuals with ITP. Finally, it is very controversial as to whether we should be screening asymptomatic people for H. pylori infection. This strategy may be cost-effective in countries with high rates of gastric cancer, and studies are ongoing. H. pylori may also be protective of GERD, and while eradicating H. pylori might decrease gastric cancer risk, it may also increase esophageal cancer risk in populations. So, you suspect H. pylori. Who should you test for it, and how? As we mentioned, the strongest indications for H. pylori testing are active peptic ulcer disease, a history of peptic ulcer disease, low-grade malt lymphoma, or history of gastric cancer. However, patients with any of these conditions we described earlier, including dyspepsia, long-term aspirin, or NSAID use, unexplained iron deficiency anemia, or ITP, may be considered for testing. In the process of working up these conditions, you will probably order other tests such as CBC or iron studies. Several modalities are available for diagnosis of H. pylori, and the choice of test may depend on whether or not a patient plans to undergo upper endoscopy. Regardless of the test, patients should stop proton pump inhibitor therapy one to two weeks prior to the testing if possible, and avoid scheduling testing shortly after completing a course of antibiotics or bismuth. This is because these medications have been shown to affect the diagnostic yield of our tests. An upper endoscopy may be indicated when there's evidence of GI bleeding, dyspepsia with or without alarm features in patients over 60, or for evaluation of other persistent upper gastrointestinal symptoms, such as dysphagia, particularly in the context of alarm symptoms. There are no pathognomonic endoscopic features for H. pylori infection, and many patients with chronic gastritis secondary to HP may have a normal endoscopic appearance, while others may have nonspecific erythema, or fribal mucosa. On the other end of this spectrum, endoscopy may reveal complications of H. pylori infection, such as gastric or duodenal ulceration, or a mass. Regardless, endoscopy alone will not tell us whether or not a person has H. pylori. We need tissue. The most sensitive and specific test for H. pylori is a histology of gastric biopsies obtained through upper endoscopy. So if a patient has an indication for a scope, then this is the preferred diagnostic modality. Of note, biopsy should be taken from multiple locations, but particularly the body and the antrum, as about 8% of patients can have localization to the antrum alone. In addition to histology, endoscopically obtained samples may be sent for rapid urease testing or bacterial culture where available. It is important to note that the sensitivity of histology may be reduced in patients with an actively bleeding ulcer or recent PPI, bismis or antibiotic use. If a patient does not have an indication for undergoing an endoscopy or endoscopic investigation is not possible, there are non-invasive testing modalities available. The choice of modality will depend on local resources as they are not equally available throughout Canada. The urea breath test takes advantage of H. pylori's intrinsic urease activity. In this test, patients take in urea with a labeled carbon isotope by mouth. If H. pylori is present, the urea is cleaved, and the labeled CO2 is absorbed into the bloodstream. It travels to the lungs and is exhaled and detected by a monitor. The test has between 95 to 100% specificity, so false positive rates are low. However, like a biopsy, sensitivity can be reduced by active GI bleeding or recent PPI, bismuth, or antibiotic use. A stool antigen assay is also available in some areas. The bacterial antigen is only present in the stool in the setting of an active chronic infection. Finally, testing for IgG antibodies is available. It is important to note that this test is sensitive and not specific for active infection, as it cannot differentiate between current and prior infections. It should only be used if the patient has never been tested for H. pylori before. If it is positive and they have never been treated for H. pylori, they will likely still have the infection. The blood test may take several decades to return to normal values and should never be used for confirmation of eradication. After all your careful testing, your patient is found to have an active H. pylori infection. Now what? Current guidelines recommend that patients who are found to have an active H. pylori infection should be treated if possible. However, recommendations for treatment of H. pylori have changed in recent years. You may have heard of a regimen known as triple therapy, or the HPPAC, which was composed of a proton pump inhibitor, or PPI amoxicillin and clarithromycin. It should be noted that PPIs actually have bactericidal properties against HP and need to be included even if the patient doesn't have an ulcer. While this therapy was effective in the past, increasing prevalence of H. pylori resistance, particularly to clarithromycin, has made it increasingly less useful. More recently, consensus statements put out both by Canadian and American Gastroenterology Associations have recommended, in combination with reviewing local antibiotic-resistant patterns, 14 days of bismuth quadruple therapy as recommended first-line treatment. This regimen consists of a PPI, bismuth, metronidazole, and tetracycline. Alternatively, concomitant non-bismuth quadruple therapy with PPI, amoxicillin, metronidazole, and clarithromycin is another first-line strategy. Choice of first-line therapy may depend on provider or patient preference as well as other comorbidities that may limit use of one or more components. Triple therapy is only appropriate in areas with low rates of chlorothromycin resistance or evidence of high local eradication rates on the regimen. For patients in whom prior treatment with another regimen was unsuccessful, bismuth, quadruple therapy, or levofloxacin-containing therapy, consisting of a PPI, amoxicillin, and levofloxacin, may be used. The Toronto consensus statement for treatment of helicobacter pylori is an excellent resource for finding the specifics of drug dosing. Side effects of the therapy are common, but are usually mild, and typically include gastrointestinal side effects such as nausea, mild abdominal cramping, or diarrhea. Of note, patients taking metronidazole should be counseled to avoid alcohol due to its known disulfiram, or antabuse, mimicking effect, which can cause significant gastrointestinal toxicity if alcohol is consumed. It's also important to closely monitor patients who are taking warfarin as several components of the treatment regimen for H. pylori can lead to supertherapeutic INRs. Following treatment of H. pylori, patients should be tested for eradication as even the best regimens only work 70 to 80% of the time. Urea breath testing performed at least four weeks after treatment completion and ideally with ppis held for one to two weeks is relatively inexpensive and non-invasive and therefore represents an excellent option for eradication testing if in doubt patients can be referred to a gastroenterologist to oversee management while h pylori was only recognized about 30 years ago Peptic ulcer disease has been recorded in antiquity as far back as the 4th century BCE, where a description of surgery for a gastric ulcer was carved on a pillar of the temple of Asclepius and Ephidorus in Greece. More recently, author James Joyce, best known for his remarkable work Ulysses, died of a perforated duodenal ulcer and is also believed to have been infected with H. pylori due to his family history of gastric cancer. If you know someone who was born and lived outside of North America as a child, there is a decent chance that they may be colonized with H. pylori. And although only about 15% of people with chronic H. pylori infections experience side effects, recent evidence has implicated H. pylori in about 90% of the world's non-cardia gastric cancer, with some studies suggesting that H. pylori eradication can cut risk of developing gastric cancer in half. Furthermore, H. pylori eradication has been shown to cause regression of certain gastric malignancies such as malt lymphomas. Due to its ongoing high prevalence outside of North America and potential for high disease burden with chronic infection, there have been some efforts to develop an H. pylori vaccine. Although there has been no successful candidates yet, this may still represent an exciting future step to the eradication worldwide. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This episode was written by Sama Anvari, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Eric Greenwald, gastroenterologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internal medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morali, theme song by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. Please check out our associated infographic at theinternetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.